Genesis uh, 17. I was going to get to that later, but we'll go ahead and get to it right now. Uh, in Exodus 17, the children of Israel are fighting a battle in the valley. And um, Moses uh, and Joshua, well, Joshua uh, picks, uh, chooses out the men that are going to fight. And Moses says in verse 9, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said unto him and fought with uh, Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. You might underline that word prevail. We're going to get to it later. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands were heavy. See, Moses is in intercession here. Joshua was, in, in a sense, in intercession too. He is in the intensive portion of intercession. But Moses is in a passive intercession. He's not doing anything except standing in the gap between the children of Israel in the valley and God in heaven. And he is standing passively there with his hands outstretched. And as long as his hands are heavenward stretched, and the children of Israel can see that, they prevail. But when his hands get so weary, he can no longer hold them up, and they drop to his side, the Amalekites win. And so here's the gap for Moses now. There is a gap of fatigue. He can't do what he was supposed to do. So what happens here? Um, verse 12, But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took, they, meaning uh, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur lifted up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. They were interceding here, for Moses, they were coming alongside him and doing for him what he could not do. So yes, we can intercede in a sense. We can be prayer warriors for our own issues. But when there are gaps there, and as I said, it can be fatigue or discouragement, or gaps of uh, depression, gaps of uh, grief, where I, I can't pray when I'm in grief about the way I usually pray. I need other people to come and hold my hands up, come and pray for me when I can't pray. I need people to intercede for me. Yes. Not really. I mean, yes, it can be, but it, it, it isn't always. In fact, more likely it's going to be relational barriers. It's going to be uh, eruptions of discord or anger or... I was talking about the intercession. When you were, when you were actively or passively 
and you were talking about the barriers. Yes. Well, what, let, let, me, let me go on here for just a minute, um, because the Old Testament is a physical picture, it's a picture acted out on a physical stage of what is in the interior, in the spirit realm, in the New Testament. So, yes, there can be physical barriers, absolutely there can be, but more often what you will find is relational um, job See, and that's kind of physical. Job, it, it's, a, it's a mix. And it's as much relational and emotional and just upheaval begins to happen. And, and relationships that normally go right are not going right. And why is there so much contention? Why is there so much frustration? Why is there so much uh, hindrances? Why can't I not go down and, and get to where I'm needing to go? Why is the refrigerator gone out? So it can be physical. And then why has the battery gone down? Because it was working fine just a little while ago. <laughs> it can be both. You, you usually finally recognize it when it, just all of these disruptive agents in relationships uh, emerge. And, and you, you finally say, boy, what is this? This has got to be spiritual warfare. And it's keeping me from praying the way I need to pray. I'm trying to go into prayer for a need and, and it gets hindered or, um, you know, I'm getting all these phone calls and I need to get here, so I ignore the phone calls. I do whatever I have to do to get here and, and I, I make myself cloister if that's what I'm needing to do in the prayer closet or if I'm needing to go visit somebody and there's all this stuff happening to keep it from happening. If I know that God has called me to do something, I need to push aside whatever is hindering me and go like a laser, and it can be emotional, relational, or physical. Sure can. And so once they got him to the feet of Jesus, their work was done. It was in Jesus' hands at this point. And so then you just stand and wait for the Lord, and if he nudges you in prayer to do something, you do it, but the intensity of your prayer life changes. Now let me give you an example. Uh, when my son was in his teenage years, he went through a period of real rebellion, and um, you know, it was really cataclysmic rebellion. <laughs> it was not mild rebellion. Uh, you know, my son doesn't do anything halfway. <laughs> and so when he went as a teenager into rebellion, it was full force. And I, I had been in a real long period of uh, strong intercession for him. Praying with great anguish at times, with great concern at times, with great intensity at times. And uh, when I finally realized the depths to which he was in rebellion, and it was on a Wednesday, I, it finally hit me. And I, I was blown away, and on Saturday I went into prayer about it because it was so overwhelming and I thought the consequences were so potentially catastrophic. Uh, I, I have got to go before the Lord. 
And I knew within 30 minutes that what I needed to pray was, Lord, do whatever you have to do to get him back into the deep waters of your will. But the word whatever scared me to death. Whatever could mean whatever. And so, uh, you know, I won't go into the, to the details of that except that it took me through how I saw God. Did I believe that God had made his first mistake with me? That this had gotten past him and was much as a surprise to him as it was to me? You know. Then did I believe that God loved my son more than I loved my son? And I had to work through that, and it didn't take me long to know, yes, he does. Do I believe that he has my son's best interest at heart? Well, I don't know about that one. So where did that take me? Do I believe that God is good or not? Because if I believe he's good, then I have to believe, and if I believe he's love, that he does have my son's best interest at heart. But I had to work through that. And then one of the big ones was, do I trust his judgment? Because <laughs> I can easily argue with God about what he should do and why he should do it my way rather than his way, and that goes to, do I trust God's judgment? That took me a while, and I finally got to where I do trust your judgment. You are omniscient. You are good. You are love. I trust your judgment. At that point, then, I could say, do whatever you have to do to get him into the deep waters of your will. And uh, right after I did that, I had this immense release because the relinquishment really was complete. Now, this is an, a an aspect of passive intercession that I was getting ready to enter into and didn't know it at the, at the moment. Relinquishment is a key element in passive intercession. When we're praying for our marriage or our loved ones or our whatever, and we have done all the fighting and wrestling that we know to do, and the Lord is, pro is pressing upon us, let me have your treasure. Put him at my feet. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. It changes how you pray. I went out of there, and, and uh, the next day, I thought, okay, I haven't prayed for Chad. I need to pray for him. You know, I, I need to get back into this. And I was, I was stopped with this mental sentence. If you have Chad in my hands, what do you need to say to me? Yeah. What, what do you need to tell me to do at this point? What do you need, what do you need to tell me about Chad? He's, he's in my hands. Do you believe that I have him? That was the thing when I stepped out of the prayer closet. The immediate thing that hit me was this mental sentence, uh, you have let your son go to God, but does God have him? Is he just floating out there in the spiritual ether? I mean, that's what went in through my head. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Just a moment of Satan's little message, because that is so Satan-like to put something like that. And then this scripture in, uh, I think it's Thessalonians, it could be Philippians, but I think it's Thessalonians. I know in whom I have believed, 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. And I said, no, Satan, he has him. And so the next day as I started to go back into my intensive prayer time, I was, what do I do? What do I say to God? Because do I believe God has him? Yes, I believe God has him. And so it completely shifted how I prayed. Um, Every time I'd start to pray, because I was in such a mode and pattern for months and months and years of praying a certain intensive way, and that pattern kept calling me, you know, go back to that because there's something wrong. There's something wrong here that you're not caring enough to be praying this way for him. And, and every time it was like, no. What do I say? God has him. I trust God. I trust God's judgment. I trust his omniscience. I trust. And so I, I, didn't, I had him on my mind a lot. Not in a worry, but just thinking about him, just kind of holding him up, like Moses held his hands up. Just kind of hold him up. But every once in a while, there'd come a nudge. And I needed in that moment to pray for Chad. And I'd pray for the binding of Satan. I'd pray for protecting Chad. There came a time, several months down the way, in September where I was nudged to go into an intensive act of intercession for him that day, for the whole day. And then it left. So what happens here when you get him to the feet of Jesus, be open to God nudging you. But don't expect to continue the same kind of intensive intercession. It's a passive intercession where you have him at the feet of Jesus. Or you have her at the feet of Jesus. Or you have the circumstance at the feet of Jesus. And he will occasionally nudge you to pray momentarily or for a period of time. But it won't be, that's probably my, my phone coming in there. I forgot to turn it off. Um, it won't be an ongoing return to that kind of active intercession once you've gotten your treasure in God's hands. So, yeah, that's a good question. It does change it. But it doesn't mean that you fall asleep at the wheel. Would that be a time Yes, and that's more for you than it is for God. Right, it's, it's a reaffirmation. Yes, uh, just kind of a refocusing, making sure that you're not losing sight of what you've done and who God is. Yes, so that it would, and you might be thanking him that he is in your hands, and Lord, I do trust you, and I, there's no guarantees there, because when I left the prayer room, the last thing the Lord sh- uh, told me was, he said, Brenda, what you've just done guarantees that if, it, and this is a mental sentence, if it is supernaturally possible for me to reach him, it will be done. And I said, 
What do you mean supernaturally possible? Isn't everything supernaturally possible for you? And he said, I will not violate his free will. So that means the relinquishment can't be, okay, I've relinquished, so everything's going to be fine. It means I have relinquished, and God is good. And he is love, and he will do everything he supernaturally can do to change the situation short of violating free will. So it doesn't carry, a relinquishment does not carry a guarantee. And if I'm holding on to a guarantee as a, through a relinquishment, I have not relinquished. Not to the bottom line, not to the core of the onion. Relinquishment's an onion, and you relinquish one layer at a time, and that, that morning, that Saturday morning, was getting down to the core of the onion. And it changed everything, but it was not for three years before I saw God's answer to my prayers. So it's not on my timetable. Pardon me? Oh, there were a couple of times. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, three or four months later, something big came up. Chad was in a ton of trouble. And I start going, trying to figure out how to fix this, how to, how to what do I need to do? How do I need to rescue? You know, what do, what do I need to do? I'm just tr trying to figure it out. And in the middle of that flurry, uh, God spoke. And he didn't speak that often during that relinquished time, but when he did speak, I knew it, you know, because he didn't speak that often. And he said, I never forget it, the mental sentence. Brenda, do you want the full flow of my power into the situation with your son, or do you want partial flow? And I thought, well, God? <laughs> I actually did. Why would I want partial flow? Of course I want the full flow of your power into the situation. And he, he spoke to me in a mental sentence, but it was the firmest, almost harsh, that he's ever spoken to me. And he said, then get out of my way. And I'll, okay, I'll get out of the way. After that, no. There was, there was no more trying to figure that out. Now, does that mean that I didn't fall over my own humanness and blow it at times um, with not a lack of faith, but just frustration or, you know, not behaving in the way I should have with him because I was so f upset? Uh, yeah, and the Lord, and I did that. And I, I did it one time where it could have completely blown everything out of the water. And, and it, could, it, it, it could have blown Chad out of the water where I wouldn't have seen him again. And God covered my bases. He covered my bases because my own humanity got in there and I lost it. And uh, I, then I started crying because I thought I may, I may never see him again. And um, God covered my bases. 
And I think that's what he does once you get him to feet. Even when your humanity breaks out and you don't do things the way you need to do it, it was not a faith issue, it was just a Brenda issue. And my own wiring uh, got in the way. But after that time where he said, get out of my way, I, I didn't try to get in his way again. If I did, it was just because Brenda broke out, you know, in her own wiring and her own temperament. But God, I found over and over again, covered those bases because his power had been freed to move as fully as it could move to get him to where he needed to get him. So at 17, the end of his... Seventeenth year, the beginning of his eighteenth year, he finally sort of came back home. And we had we had a few months for him to restore his relationship with his dad before his dad got brain cancer. And and that was a God thing. That whole thing was. So those are the two aspects of intercession. This, there's this intensive physical, emotional, relational. Uh, hindrances and, and forces that come against you that, that you are fighting against. Now the other picture here is in the spiritual realm. This picture in Mark 2 is a picture of the kind of battle we're doing in the unseen, in the spiritual realm. Yes, there will be hindrances that break out that try to keep us off balance. But beyond that, there is this other picture that when we are praying, we are praying against those rulers, those dominions of the unseen that are active, that we don't even know what they're doing, but we see the manifestation of what they're doing in the behavior of the person, in the disruption of the relationship, in the strongholds that continue to manifest. That's the evidence of the behind-the-scenes spiritual warfare that's going on. And we have to stay in prayer, in this intensive mode of prayer, because I'd been in intensive prayer for my son for years. And that was necessary. Because there was spiritual warfare coming. And so prayer goes at binding Satan. Turn to Matthew 12. 27. Um... Jesus is being accused of casting out uh, 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 demons by uh, Beelzebub, by Satan. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus comes against that. If I, by Beelzebub, cast, verse 27, cast out devils, then by whom do your children cast them out? Every once in a while, God gets real uh, Christ gets real logical here and, and, and wins the debate. Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. Else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, then he will spoil his house? What does that mean? What does that have to do with what we're talking about? Who is a strong man? Satan. See, Christ, when he's casting out demons, is entering into Satan's house. And he said, you cannot take what Satan possesses. 
unless first he is bound. Unless first the strong man, Satan, is bound. Once he's bound, then you can go in and, and get his possessions. He said, the kingdom of God has come to you if I'm casting out demons. So, see, we're dealing with kingdom authority here. Strongholds are where Satan has set up his kingdom authority in the, the soulish mind realm of a believer or a non-believer. doesn't have to be, I mean, but in... And so his reestablishment of his toehold in the believer's life is for the purpose of debilitating the witness and the function of the believer. He can't get his eternal soul, his eternal spirit. He can't get that. But he can get patches. And that is where his authority has gotten set up again. So prayer goes to binding the strong man's authority in those strongholds or in those other patches where Satan is prevailing. Prayer is a key instrument in binding the spiritual warfare activity that's going on invisibly behind the scenes that is pictured in the physical realm by the friends doing whatever they had to do to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. Ours is in the spiritual realm. The spiritual anti-aircraft fire, the spiritual warfare that's going on, prayer penetrates that, whether you know it or not. Prayer is about binding up the power grip of Satan in a certain situation or a certain person. And so you're praying that God's kingdom come and his will be done there. Because it's kingdom battles that are going on here that's, that prayer invades and prayer addresses. Maybe another word I should put there is prayer engages. Yes, because you, you look here at the idea of a battle, and there's punch and counterpunch. And that's when God, if, if God is leading you to a certain place, and you know that, that you're, you're tracking with him, and maybe it's getting ready to be a breakthrough that you may not even know about, you will know it's getting ready to be a breakthrough if all hell breaks loose in your life, if there's all sorts of stuff going on, and, and especially in relationships, you can know that Satan is bringing that up. And so, yes, when you're praying for someone, Satan will, can sense that in some fashion in the spirit realm. He doesn't know what we're praying, but he can sense that there is divine activity going, and he's going to increase his activity often, not always. But once we get into an established place where there is a binding going on, then that begins to diminish. Now, there may be a period where it's diminished for a while, and then all at once something happens. Well, it's because probably Satan has found, or Satan's rulers, his sub-henchmen, have found a gap in the armor, an opening that they can get into. You know... Uh, the strategists, the military minds and strategists, one of their, their main efforts at times is to try to go around the lines 
and, and plant themselves in the enemy territory and come at them from within. The Trojan horse. But other military, uh, in World War II, military efforts were to drop parachutists down behind enemy lines and come at them that way. Well, Satan does that. Uh, he will try to do an end around and come at you from an unexpected way where there's a gap in the armor, either of the person that you're praying for or of you. So yes, there are going to be flare-ups of intensity. But once he's being bound, then you begin to see a different kind of movement. And that binding can take a long time. The, I, the, back over here to Ephesians um, 6, the, the picture that Paul uses there uh, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, uh, against spiritual rulers. <clears throat> the word wrestle there was um, referencing the Greek wrestlers. That uh, the Greek wrestling that was occurring not just in the Greek uh, civilization, but the Roman Empire, because Rome assimilated so much of the Greek culture. And so they had these, these, these wrestling matches between two wrestlers, and um, they would wrestle almost unto death. It wasn't a death thing, but it, the, the, the one would win who finally got his hand on the neck of the, his opponent and pinned him to the ground by the neck. And then the loser would have his eyes gouged out and he would be made blind. Now, so when Paul is talking here using that wrestling phrase, that wrestling term, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, the people that read that understood the dimension of what he's saying here. They understood the intensity of what he was saying. They had seen the intensity of that kind of wrestling match that ended only when someone's neck was pinned to the ground and they were made blind. So they understood that you don't give up here. The only way you lose is if you have, you have no option. Well, see, Satan doesn't give up. Let me read to you something that S.D. Gordon said in his uh, Quiet Talks on Prayer. I love the way he said it. It is a fiercely contested conflict. Satan is a trained strategist and an obstinate fighter. He refuses to acknowledge defeat until he must. It is the fight of his life. Strange as it must seem and perhaps absurd, he apparently hopes to succeed. If we knew all, it might seem less strange and absurd because of the factors on his side. There is surely uh, much down in the world of, well, let me go on down here. Prayer is insisting upon Jesus' victory and the retreat of the enemy on each particular spot and heart and problem concerned. Prayer is insisting upon Jesus' victory. The enemy yields only what he must. He yields only what is taken. 
Therefore, the ground must be taken step by step. Prayer must be definite. He yields only when he must. Therefore, prayer must be persistent. He continually renews his attacks. Page 33. Uh, Quiet Talks on Prayer by S.D. Gordon. Now, that's why Paul used those terms. Because he was trying to give to them a picture of the intensity and the necessity and the, the stakes on the table with prayer. So the nature of intercession, I've given you a couple of points of that. I said we must be willing for prayers to be answered through us, but we must persevere. We must stand in prayer and intercession until the prayer is answered. Because Satan only gives up when he must. And he renews his attacks. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against him in prayer. So don't pray the symptom. Pray behind the scenes. Pray for the binding of Satan. When we're praying the symptom... Our prayers are diluted. Lord, help me to control my temper. Help me to get a better handle on this. Help him to behave better. Help her to have more faith. Well, okay, I'm I'm coming in closer. But bind the one, the God of this world, who puts the blinders on her eyes or on his eyes. Open their eyes so they can see. Bind Satan's deception. Bind the spirit of deception. Let your truth and your light come into this place. Bind Satan's activity. Push his forces back. Push back the walls of darkness here so that your light can prevail and your light can accompany your truth. Because when truth is illumined, it changes us. When truth comes in the darkness and stays in the darkness and is not illumined by the light, it may be in our head, but it's not in our heart. So we start praying behind the scenes. We pray for the enemy who has his death grip on the neck of a spouse or a child or a parent. People who are abusive are dominated by Satan's influence in that area. Satan is the real enemy. They are not. The bad marriage is not the real issue. Satan behind the scenes is the real issue and the blindness that he inflicts. So we're going to have to stop for you to change. Let me give you all a break. We'll pick up right here. Give you 10 minutes. If you need to take a break, walk around outside. Thank you all. All right, I think we're going to get started again. Uh, 
<clears throat> just a couple of loose ends to uh, kind of pull together from uh, ending is quite, I'll end a little bit quick, more quickly than I had planned to, but we were running out of, out of uh, room on our recorder thing, so we needed to switch over. But um, I want to make sure everybody has signed the sheet that's gone around. You, is it hot in here? Do we need to turn the uh, air conditioner down to 73? Uh, I, it, there is a difference between 73 and 74 in here. I don't know what it is, but yes. Yes, that's what we need, and it's not. Uh, Teresa, could you turn it to 73? And then if you need to, you can turn it back up to 74 when you see icicles or people shivering, one of the, one of the two. Um, uh, Kathy mentioned something that I wouldn't have thought of in that Mark II version, uh, knowing that that picture of the work that they went to is fundamentally a picture of the work that we're doing in the unseen in the spiritual realm. Yes, there will be hindrances that break out in the physical, but we're still fighting to, to f get the person to the feet of Jesus. And we don't give up until that happens. And that might take a year. It might take five years. Um, it might take five months. Um, my cousin, I'm going off here. Um, my cousin, uh, years ago, when she was in her 20s, and she's a little younger than I am. Went, she had become a Christian uh, in her early 20s, and then she went on a missionary trip over to uh, Siberia and then came back down through South Africa. And uh, the people that she was with took her into um, Zululand, South Africa. And she said when she entered into that territory, she said... Uh, I felt a holy presence. She said it was palpable. And she said, wow, what is going on here? It's like God's presence is here. And the man smiled and he said, there's a great revival breaking out here. And uh, he said, uh, one man who has been a Christian for many years began praying 10 years ago for a revival for God's spirit to break loose. And he said, we are seeing miracles of every sort. And there is a great coming to Christ now in this, in, in Zulu territory. She said when she left South Africa, there came a point at which she felt a heavy oppression coming over her. She asked the flight attendant, she said, what airspace are we over? She said, we have just entered into Kenyan airspace. And she said, I could tell the difference. Now, that person prayed for 10 years. His prayers changed after the revival started because the binding of Satan had taken 10 years of all of the spiritual demonic warfare that is particularly heavy in certain parts of Africa. There's a story of a woman many, many years ago who uh, attended, uh, her, she was a member of an inner city uh, church in Houston, and she began praying for a revival because the church was dead. And it just kept diminishing, and all the other churches were moving out of the inner city and into the suburbs, and their church decided to stay in the inner city, but it was dead. There, there was no sense of God's spirit, and she prayed for 10 years. 
and then a revival began to break out in her church. And it became a very a strategic inner city church in Houston. And this was probably 30 years ago. There is the story of this uh, invalid woman in London in the 1800s who couldn't go to church. Her sister, whom, with whom she lived, went to church every Sunday. But this woman, I'll call her Elizabeth, I don't know what her name was, um, couldn't... <laughs> okay, there we are. <laughs> she... <laughs> Uh, please don't take any affront to that. Uh, uh, but um, she began praying. Uh, she had read sermons of Dwight Moody from America. And she began praying that Dwight Moody would come uh, to England, would come to London. And he was only in, the, uh, in America. It had not come overseas. And she prayed for 10 years. And one Sunday morning, her sister came home, and she said, you will never believe who was in our church service this morning. And, and Elizabeth said, who? And she said, Dwight Moody. And her face grew pale, and she said, you're kidding me. 